would not give credit to, and one of more breeding would certainly not retail in the drawing-room. A husband, though one must believe he is a sensible man, or at least a clever one, or else how would he have made such a fortune in India? Instead of trying to check her, hangs upon her words and laughs over her extravagances as if they were the pinnacle of feminine wit and vivacity— a very disgusting display of conjugal affection, which I think we might be spared from a husband and wife with more than twenty years' married life behind them, and two grown daughters into the bargain. The daughters in question are, I believe, as undecided as her ladyship over what one should think, and want to know whether interest, horror, or indifference would be most becoming, or at least which Colonel Walborough would find most becoming. Although I think it might be a kindness to just mention to them that neither Miss Harris's past-lip silence nor Miss Sophia's excessive sorrow over the death of the poor, poor, unfortunate woman are likely to charm a sensible man. The colonel himself seems to have expressed all that he feels upon the subject with a long, rather dull story which he told us at dinner about a similar incident that occurred when he was stationed in Bahama. At least I think it was Bahama. It was somewhere that has very hot weather and odd diseases. The colonel has not quite that power of narration which chains the listener's attention— and then, when the story was done, Mr. Tom Lomax must try to enliven our dessert by calling on Mr. Harris to better it, since he was sure, from all he'd heard from his numerous acquaintance in the place, that India was as full of strange and shocking events as ever Bahama was. That sally did not amuse anyone, least of all Mr. Harris, who seemed to be extremely discomposed by it, though I confess... I liked it rather better than Mr. Tom's next attempt at wit, which was to lament that his friend Richard was not at home to see all this carry-on, which, by G, is as good as play. Which distressed poor Catherine terribly, and I thought it quite unpardonable of him to draw attention to Mr. Montague's absence in that way. I was glad when Mr. William Lomax, his father, spoke the only bit of sense we'd heard all evening, calling him to order and reminding him to show a little respect for the dead. By the by, I am excessively fond of Mr. William Lomax. He is so kindly and so well made, and he has a very fine profile. He has also the very great recommendation of being a widower, and... All in all, I'm rather sorry that I gave up the business of falling in love some years ago. Well, I have given you a picture of them all now, except those who, I make no doubt, you most wish to hear of. And I expect to be thoroughly called to order by you in your next letter for abusing my fellow creatures so dreadfully. Remember that I quite rely upon your strictures— for why else do I allow my pen to run on so cruelly? But that you may prove yourself my superior in candour and liberality, as you are in everything else. And as for our nearest relations, well, they are as you have probably imagined them. 
Margaret is almost as concerned for the health and welfare of the name of Montague as Sir Edgar can be, for ever since Catherine's engagement to Mr. Montague, she has considered the name as pretty much her own, and I dare say Francis feels the same. Though I have not seen him, he left on business to town some hours before I arrived here. And dear Catherine? Well, to own the truth, she is too distressed over the business I explained in my last to notice much what happens around her. And yet, if this matter is not settled soon, I fear it will hurt her dreadfully. You see, there is to be an inquest... It seems it cannot be avoided because of no one here even knowing who the dead woman is. Even the servants, and I have spoken to most of them myself, cannot guess who she might be. Though I suppose they may be lying. She lifted her pen and smiled wryly at the last words, reflecting that she had not, as she wrote,